At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense political talk without the boring parts. I'm John Wiener. Today we'll talk about Jared Kushner's new job on the White House Coronavirus Task Force. Amy Willens will report. She's our chief Jared correspondent. Also, Nation columnist Layla Lalami will talk about her novel, The Other Americans. It's about the suspicious death of a Moroccan immigrant in a small town in California. It's a family saga, a murder mystery, and a love story. And it's out now in paperback. But first, the Pentagon and the virus. Donald Trump kept saying for weeks that the COVID-19 epidemic, quote, something that just surprised the whole world, something that, quote, came out of nowhere. Of course, we now know there were many warning signs, but the nation's Ken Klippenstein is reporting an especially significant discovery. The military knew not just in December or January, but years ago, that a coronavirus was coming. He's Washington correspondent for the magazine. Ken Klippenstein, welcome to the program. Hey, great to be here. Well, two big questions. What did the Pentagon know and when did they know it? So according to this um, document that was leaked to me dated January 6th of 2017, um, U.S. NORTHCOM, which stands for Northern Command, this is the part of the military that um, has oversight of North America, that's what NORTHCOM stands for, anticipated, I'm going to quote from it now, quote, the most likely and significant threat is a novel respiratory disease, particularly a novel influenza disease. An outbreak in a single community can quickly evolve into a multinational health crisis that causes millions to suffer, as well as spark major disruption in every facet of society. And it goes on to anticipate a number of problems that ended up, uh, in fact, emerging, for example, lack of uh, mechanical ventilators, lack of face masks, lack of equipment generally, lack of supply chains to be able to um, distribute them, and uh, subsequent brutal competition in the private sector over a lot of these resources, which I think proved um, uncannily accurate. And was this a secret document, a classified document? How come we haven't seen it before you published it? It's called. It's kind of a gray area between um, classified and unclassified. So technically it's unclassified, but it's what's called for official use only. That is an internal um, designation. It is a designation that the government uses for certain internal documents like um, law enforcement documents, uh, military documents, to make it so that it's um, not something that's uh, disseminated to the public. And even when you know reporters request it under Freedom of Information Act, um, that it has certain protections against uh, portions of it being released. So while it's not classified, it was something that they did not uh, want released to the public. Trump did nothing, even though this document was created in 2017. Are you sure he got the report? Where did it go from the people who wrote it? So when you have uh, the headquarters of NORTHCOM producing something like this, as the document shows, it's a very high-level uh, military document. And that's a region that's obviously important because this is North America. That's where the you know contiguous United States is. Um, I find it very hard to believe that um, this wasn't disseminated to the White House. But what we know 
is that the White House in uh, what are called presidential presidential daily briefs each day. The president is briefed by leaders of the intelligence community about threats to the United States and its interests. And what we what we do know is that the president had been briefed multiple times, um, not just uh, about coronavirus earlier this year, but about the threat of pandemics for years and years now. Um, an individual I spoke to in the Defense Intelligence Agency, his name is Dennis Kaufman, described um, how they had known and kept their eye on coronavirus for a very long time, for at least a decade prior to this. So this so this is something that was well known. And um, indeed, they have more intelligence than what we are able to ascertain. What we're seeing is the tip of the iceberg. When we see, um, for example, this document or um, there's something called the uh, Global Threat Assessment, if I remember correctly, another thing that the intelligence community brings to the president and, and to the other policymakers that describes the threat of these pandemics, that none of that is including. Um, so, for example, this document has a number of classified annexes that it refers to. We did not publish classified annexes, nor do I uh, nor am I in, in possession of them because they're very tightly guarded. And so those annexes are going to go even, even, they're going to go into even further detail than what we're seeing. And so what we're seeing is really just the tip of the iceberg about what the um, administration knew. And why would any of this be classified, I wonder? I mean, the coronavirus is a threat to everybody. And the more we know about it, the better off we're likely to be in, in resisting it. There's certainly overclassification uh, and, you know, problems with how aggressively um, administrations classify things. If you look at annual reports that are put out to give you a sense of how many classified documents are produced, it has just ballooned over the last couple decades. Um, so unless the secrets are increasing, um, it would seem that they're abusing that part. <laughs> yes. However, um, when you look at something like when you look at something like China, I think there are probably certain cases where um, what the intelligence community calls sources and methods. They want to yes. be able to protect those. So, for example, the CIA has an asset uh, in China that is giving us information about what their internal um, you know, government's response to the health system is. You want to be able to um, obscure the information such that that individual's identity remains concealed so they don't get uh, killed <laughs> or so that we don't lose access. So, for example, if they're yeah. doing what are called and they have we have very sophisticated apparatus looking at uh, what are called bio threats, pandemics, diseases, both manufactured and, and organic. And so we use things like um, human intelligence, running spies, signals intelligence. You know, we hack into computer systems, our, our military does and our intelligence agencies do. And so um, that would be their argument for why they can't disclose yeah. these things is because disclosing them would, would, would reveal some of these operations and we would lose insight. There's certainly some truth to that, but there's plenty of evidence that they also abuse um, these privileges as well in yeah. terms of not letting us know. So you're saying the Pentagon has been concerned about coronaviruses as part of the threats to the security of the United States. Are are they talking here about a bioweapon? Are they suggesting that the coronavirus would be used intentionally against American military forces? There is that conspiracy theory from Tom Cotton, the senator from Arkansas, who says, you know, the coronavirus is a bioweapon created by the Chinese government that escaped from a secret lab in Wuhan. And I, you know, there are people in the Twitterverse who say, yeah, it wasn't an accident. It's an intentional attack uh, by uh, China on us and the world. Is that what the Pentagon report is suggesting here? No, I've spoken to, um, not only is the Pentagon report not suggesting that, that's also not what anyone that I've spoken to in the military intelligence community is saying. Um, that is widely regarded as sort of a, a crackpot idea. Very self-serving, though, because when the president can go and say, China, 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 you know, call it the Wuhan virus, call it the China virus, that, you know, um, politically is getting some of the heat off themselves and saying it's actually their fault. It's not my fault that, you know, I waited 
since knowing about this uh, since at least January, perhaps sooner than that even, um, and didn't do anything. It's actually the, the baleful Chinese that hoisted this on us, and, and we should all be angry at them instead of instead of myself. So I've been sort of amazed at the uniformity of opinion in terms of people I've spoken to, both inside and outside government, who've said, no, this is clearly not something that was manufactured. At worst, it was an accident, if, if, even, if even that. Um, on the part of the Chinese uh, government, but um, I've seen no no indication or evidence to suggest that there was any sort of um, intention behind it. An accident? You mean that it was being developed as a bioweapon, but it escaped from the lab? Is that part of this report? Not necessarily that. That's not in the report, but this is with intelligence officials I've spoken to who, who know about this stuff and are in touch with people that know about it. And they've said that it could have been something where they themselves were trying to, um, just maybe just in a laboratory setting, like we would have uh, researching a disease and trying to find a cure for it. Uh, and just to go back a step here, when we get big leaks like this one, of course we ask, what's the motivation of the leaker? You kind of referred to this in passing, but let's be specific. What do you think is going on here? Why is the Pentagon sharing this material, someone in the Pentagon sharing this with you now? Well, I want to stress that the source um, wanted to tell me that they didn't have anything derogatory to say about the military. And that, and the intelligence community, and that they thought they had done their jobs as well as they could have, and that they knew what was going on. Um, they were just not listened to, uh, and that seemed to me to be very clearly the the motive uh, is to correct the public record around this narrative that's coalescing. That oh, this is just like, you know, this is another intelligence failure like 9/11, where the CIA just got it wrong, or you know, the intelligence agencies got it wrong. No, they didn't get it wrong. They had it right. It was the policymakers that got it wrong and didn't listen. So this is evidence not only of Trump's monumental incompetence. But in some ways, equally uh, significant, the military's efforts to challenge him, to expose him, to criticize him for it. Or am I going too far? No, I, I believe so. Absolutely. And I've spoken uh, when I do a story like this, you know, I'll mention one source is providing something for me. But these are very often group endeavors where, you know, people introduce me to other people. Different people look at things for me and, and, and tell me if this looks right. You know, does it pass a smell test? So on and so forth. And, and the impression I get from so many military and intelligence is that they are furious at the way that uh, this is being handled. And many of these, I want to you know stress, are not necessarily progressive nation readers. You know, many of them, <laughs> uh, their politics might their politics might surprise you, and they're angry because the military has something called readiness that they're always very concerned about. And readiness is the notion that uh, you know should some sort of you know threat emerge, the, the need to send a bunch of troops somewhere, they are ready and prepared and you know healthy and, and able to do that. And so um, on an institutional level, that's a big concern because this document uh, describes in pretty shocking detail what it anticipates to be a loss of uh, huge numbers of personnel. And I actually had a document leaked to me from the Department of Homeland Security that found the same thing, that they're, they're talking, you know, losing so many personnel that they're not able to maintain the functions of uh, civil society. So we're talking, you know, uh, breakdown in, 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 in law and order. So very chilling stuff that I don't, I really don't think is 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 exaggerated. It makes sense if you look at, if you look at what could happen. So that's a lot of the concern on their part. And then also just personally, like I was talking to a Marine recently, he was very angry about the fact that um, they had not relaxed what are called the grooming standards. So when you see you know Marines that have very short hair cropped a certain way, that's that's a cultural, that's a that's a that's a that's part of the rules, you know. And so other branches within the military have have said, okay, you don't have to go get haircuts anymore because. When you go to a barber, you're not social distancing, and that's a risk we don't necessarily need to take right now. You know, it's fine if you want to grow your hair out for the time being. Well, and for whatever reason, the, the Marines have not relaxed that standard. This person was very angry, and that is exactly the sort of 
tone and tenor of, of things I'm hearing from many tipsters reaching out who often, you know, won't talk to the media. They're saying, um, you know, we're going to die. My friends are going to die, could die if if this thing is not um, taken seriously enough because the political at the top are not responding with, with adequate urgency. Ken Klippenstein, the nation's Washington correspondent. You can read his piece and see the Pentagon documents at thenation.com. Ken, thank you for this terrific report. Great to talk to you. Now it's time for the Jared Report. For that, we turn to our chief Jared correspondent, Amy Willens. She's a longtime contributing editor at The Nation. And she was also a Jerusalem correspondent for The New Yorker. And she's best known, of course, for her work on Haiti. Most recently, the award-winning book, Farewell, Fred Voodoo. Amy, welcome back. Thank you, John. So nice to be here. Well, last Thursday was when Jared spoke at the president's daily coronavirus briefing for the press. And Vice President Pence introduced them by saying Jared had been directed by the White House Coronavirus Task Force to take on a central role in the administration's response to the pandemic. This was big news. What are his responsibilities? He's running the supply chain for emergency protective equipment. He's in charge of ventilators. He's in charge of distributing or not distributing the uh the federal stockpile of medical supplies. Um, he's fielding questions and I wouldn't call them demands, but requests from governors around the country. Those are among his, uh, his tasks. And uh, this is a special post that's been created for him inside FEMA, the Federal Emergency Management Agency. Remind us about Jared's qualifications for this job. Well, top qualification is he married Ivanka Trump. That's the daughter of the president, in case you've okay. forgotten. Okay. So that's that's a major qualification. Then uh, my first encounter with Jared Kushner was when he came to the New York Observer newspaper and ran that into the ground. Then he bought a skyscraper in New York for something like $1.8 billion, more than had ever been spent on a property in New York. And uh, it went into bankruptcy. I don't know that he's ever dealt with the disease of any kind. <laughs> okay. Um, no, he has no qualifications for this job. But but that doesn't stop Trump. He didn't have any qualifications for any of the other jobs Trump has given him, other than being the first son-in-law. So uh, you know, why not? Why not put him in charge of a global pandemic? that is now sweeping across the country, and he has no idea what to do. He spoke at that press briefing, and and remind us what he said. He said the notion of a federal stockpile of medical equipment was it's supposed to be our stockpile. It's not supposed to be state stockpiles that they can then use. That's what he said. And... Our stockpile, that, uh, that's a very strange... Yeah, who, who's us? <laughs> no one really knows who the hour is. Um, but I looked into this a little bit, and uh, on the federal stockpile's homepage, 
that morning before Jared spoke, it said, strategic national stockpile is the nation's largest supply of life-saving pharmaceuticals and medical supplies for use in a public health emergency severe enough to cause local supplies to run out. When state, local, tribal, and territorial responders request federal assistance to support their response efforts, the stockpile ensures that the right medicines and supplies get to those who need them most during an emergency. Sounds great. The day after Jared spoke about how the stockpile was ours and for us and not for the states, the sentences on the Strategic National Stockpile page was gone. And the revised page (laughs) reads, the Strategic National Stockpile's role is to supplement state and local supplies during public health emergencies. Many states have products stockpiled as well. The supplies, medicines, and devices for life-saving care contained in the stockpile can be used as a short-term stopgap buffer when the immediate supply of adequate amounts of these materials may not be immediately available. As someone said, uh, this was Jeremy Korndak, who who served under Obama as director of the USAID's Office of U.S. Foreign Disaster Assistance. He said that the original copy couldn't be a more literal refutation of Jared's claim, and he called the, the change absolutely Orwellian. It is, of course. Um, and the amazing thing is Jared has gone on to say that the governor's demands for, for help from the federal government are not uh, based on anything real and that Jared knows about each state's stockpile and that uh, Governor Cuomo has lots of stockpiles of medical equipment in New York and doesn't need help from the federal government, all based on nothing. Usually the job of the White House is to say, we're all in this together. We're doing everything that we can to help everybody so everybody can be healthy. Jared is sort of taking the opposite tack of blaming governors, especially Democratic governors, for failing to do their job. And therefore, it's not his fault. That doesn't seem like the uh, ideal leadership role in a time of crisis. No, but it's perfect for a member of this family and especially for Jared Kushner, who is not a responsibility taker. You know, one of the many qualifications he brought to this was the fact that he did not make peace in the Middle East, um, which was was another of the the insoluble problems. That's what President Trump likes to do to Jared. He gives him all the insoluble problems, even though the guy's incompetent. So he gave him the opioid crisis to solve. That's not solved. He gave him peace in the Middle East to make. He didn't make peace in the Middle East. He asked him to reform government. We see where that's gone. And uh, he's also running the Trump campaign for 2020, by the way. Yeah. And, and a lot of people have been speculating, well, what exactly? I mean, what if he's running the coronavirus challenge in order to, you know, make hay for the presidential campaign. Um, I think he's not doing that good a job, but, but you know, you never know with Trump supporters what they're going to think of a job that I might think is not being done well. They might think it's being done really well. Like, yeah, they might think, screw California and New York. Uh, let's keep that federal stockpile for us. Well, to shift the focus slightly, uh, let's talk about his brother. This is Josh Kushner. Some call him the good Kushner. He's also been in the news lately for developing a website to help Americans find coronavirus testing sites. That not that a great thing for the good Kushner, Brother Josh, to be doing? It was a brilliant idea. They wanted to have a website where you could go on and 
it would direct you to the nearest uh, coronavirus testing site in your neighborhood or maybe a couple of neighborhoods down, and you could do drive-through t- testing, et cetera. And Jared had owned part of this group called Oscar Health, which was developing the website. But strangely, the website never really uh, materialized. It was suddenly scrapped. Uh, the Atlantic did a big takeout on it, and... Um, it never saw the light of day, and what was, what to me was most interesting about it was it was a website directing you to testing, but there is no testing. So there's just, I think the United States has the least tested population per capita of, of any, um, any developed nation. So this was a, a website in theory, and Josh Kushner had his father-in-law go online to a group of doctors his father-in-law knew to ask them for recommendations about it, and uh, it all fell apart, you know, and it was all nepotism anyway. And is this a nonprofit uh, organization, Oscar Health? No, Oscar Health is a, a health insurance company. Why would a private uh, insurance company be given the responsibility to develop the government website directing Americans to coronavirus uh, testing places? Wait, are you leading the witness? (laughs) I can't answer that question. But you know what I find amazing also? What? It is just shocking to me that in the United States, which I formerly thought of as a kind of a great country with a uh, booming economy, it may not be my favorite country in the world. It may not have the economy, the style of which I like the best, but I thought it was a fairly vibrant economy. And instead of making our own masks and our own ventilators and our own protective equipment, we are brilliantly, the Trump administration is is patting itself on the back for flying in equipment from China. It's stunning to me that the War Powers Act has not been, or whatever it's called now, the defense production, maybe, is not being used appropriately to, one, put Americans back to business again, and two, to make things to fight this this virus and to um, help people on the front lines, really soldiers on the front lines to protect themselves as they go into war against a, a serious enemy. And we're not doing that ourselves. We're having plane loads come in from China. Is that Trumpian or is that not Trumpian? I'm not sure. And finally, it's time for Ivanka Watch reporting on the first daughter. Ivanka was exposed to the virus early on during a meeting with an infected Australian official, so she she self-quarantined. She did not get sick. Uh, What's she been doing since? First of all, why was Ivanka Trump meeting with an Australian official? It just it beggars the imagination, but okay. So, well... She's working really hard to help Americans from her multi-million dollar home in a um, a very beautiful area of Washington. And she's launched this thing called the Hashtag Together Apart campaign. And its motto is to consistently encourage social distancing while maintaining a sense of togetherness online. And they say at the White House, the hashtag can be used to share all types of content like educational, musical, fitness, or family activity ideas to entertain our children and each other during social distancing. It doesn't take into account people who don't have jobs or money and can't stay home with their kids and have to figure out, can they get a job 
doing landscaping in Ivanka's garden so that they can feed their children. No, that is not what it does. But she's working really hard in her own way, although I thought she was responsible in the White House for women's economic needs and problems. But apparently she's not working from home anymore on that particular issue. She's got things more like uh, plan a living room camp out on her Instagram feed. And um, (laughs) even more introspective thoughts on like what this weird moment means to Ivanka Trump. It's a unique chance for reflection, self-improvement and family connectivity. It's almost like a rap session for her or a yoga meet. You know, she's found the time to expand her own mind. We should all be very scared. Yeah, she goes on. She says, um, so this is how she expands her own mind. Maybe we don't need to be frightened. I've got a Coursera free course going in Greek and Roman mythology. So I'm rereading the Odyssey. Note that rereading. Of course. (laughs) Uh, And I've started to play the guitar and I'm really working on it. You know what I like about that? You can look forward (laughs) to videos of Ivanka playing, you know, the answer my friend is blowing in the wind (laughs) on her guitar online. I'm waiting for that moment. Maybe she'll learn to play the dulcimer like Joni Mitchell. Ivanka is reading the Odyssey and playing the guitar, an excellent example for all of us. Amy Willens is our chief Jared correspondent. Amy, thank you for today's report. Thanks, John. Now it's time to talk about The Other Americans. That's the new novel by Leila Lalami. Her last novel, The Moore's Account, won the American Book Award and was a Pulitzer finalist. She's written for the New York Times, the Washington Post, Harper's and The Guardian. And, of course, she's a columnist for The Nation. Leila Lalami, welcome back. Thank you for having me. Well, America is a country of immigrants, we all say. And the standard immigrant story is... The American dream, immigrant crosses the ocean, works really hard, becomes a success. The story in your new novel is a little more complicated. (laughs) As life tends to be. (laughs) So the book begins with the death of a Moroccan immigrant on a desert road in a hit-and-run accident. And we don't know. There's a mystery about who's driving or whether it's an accident or, or something else. And... The guy who is killed is a Moroccan immigrant. His name is Dries Gerawi, and he came to the United States in 1981 with his wife following some political trouble he got into in Morocco, and he moves to the desert in the Mojave, starts a business, and the whole idea for him was that he would come to this country with his wife and find safety and opportunity. And the first paragraph of the book is basically this accident where he dies. So the thing that he was searching for, he doesn't find. And then so the book is told from the perspectives of multiple characters, including his daughter, who's a musician, who returns home at the beginning of the book because of this death, his wife, who's now his widow, his other daughter, the person who runs the business next door, you know, the detective who's investigating the story. But basically all of these characters have some kind of a connection to him. And the book is told from their perspectives. And the setting is not a big city immigrant neighborhood like East L.A. or the Bronx. Mm -hmm. Instead, you set it in a small town in the Mojave Desert. Already, we are surprised. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think, you know, that sort of is the expectation. I mean, I was 
born and raised in Rabat, which is the capital of Morocco. And then I lived in London. And after that, I lived in Los Angeles. So I've always thought of myself as a big city person. It's a space that I feel comfortable in, the density, the noise, and all of that, and the mix of people. But in writing this book, I had two reasons for setting it in the desert. One was just because I like the desert. <laughs> and I, and yes. And I, you know, a few years ago, we started going out to the Mojave, actually. And I just really fell in love with the landscape and with the silence and the peace and the quiet and the sort of the fauna and the flora. And I just, I also like the fact that it's the landscape that requires your attention. It's not something that reveals itself if you're kind of a careless onlooker. It requires you to pay attention in order to notice the life that is happening there. And the second reason is because it starts with this hit and run, I thought it would be much more interesting to set it in a small town where the people who lost this man, his family members, might at some point come across the perpetrator of this crime. I guess we have to talk about Donald Trump and (laughs) the politics of immigration. Of course, he's made a big point about not wanting refugees from those whole countries. He prefers blonde and blue-eyed immigrants from Norway, he said. In your book, that issue, the politics of immigration, is often in the background and certainly in our minds as readers. Yeah. I I was wondering how long it was going to take us to (laughs) before we got to Trump. You know, I have a theory that no conversation between any people in this country can last for long without Donald Trump coming up. (laughs) We went four minutes. Yes, that's that. So it is a question that has come up as I've been promoting this book. But I started working on this book in 2014, long before Trump announced, and frankly, but long before I even knew of his prominence. I mean, I honestly knew nothing about the man other than he was a real estate billionaire and that he had a TV show that I'd never watched. So I didn't really know anything about him. And I was working on this story about this immigrant. I've had a longstanding interest in the subject, also because I'm an immigrant myself, and I wanted to write a story about that sort of centers on this immigrant. The book basically explores immigration from multiple different perspectives. There's the couple who came here in 1981, but there's also one daughter who was brought here as a toddler and then one daughter who was born here. And it basically goes into their different experiences of immigration. One, even though she's born here, she still has the effects of that immigration are still felt upon her. And then there's another character who is an undocumented immigrant. So that's a completely different situation for him and and sort of the choices that he faces. Let's talk about the cop a little bit. This is not just an immigrant novel. It's also a detective story, a mystery. Mm -hmm. And mysteries are a well-established genre (laughs) with their own, you know, requirements and traditions. It's kind of a bold thing to step (laughs) across the line into that territory. How hard was it for you to write about the cops and the detectives? Did you study Michael Connelly's (laughs) books? Uh, Did you... Do, I don't know, ride-alongs with cops in the desert? We have a saying in Morocco that goes something like this. He who has a tongue will never be lost, which the (laughs) idea being that as long as you ask questions, you will get answers. So I knew, you know, in working on this story, once I wanted to include an element of mystery that I had to basically do my homework. Fortunately, I'd I'd grown up when I was young, like when I was in my teens, that's all I read was mysteries. So I actually was pretty well read from that, but I hadn't picked up a mystery in quite some time. So I wrote my friend 
Todd Goldberg, who's a crime writer, and I said, Todd, help me out. You know, give me a nice long reading list of what do you admire, what's going on. And so he gave me this long list, and I went home and I read and read and read all these crime writers. And then I also did my own research. So as you mentioned, I went on a ride along with a sheriff's deputy from the San Bernardino <laughs> County Sheriff's what, what, Department. Tell us about the ride along. <laughs> what was that like? It was a long, it was 12 hours oh. and it was in the heat. And his name was Officer Campos. He was very nice. And we had all kinds of encounters during the day. And of course, I had to remain in my seat and obey all of his directives, but I got to see a lot. I got to see, you know, like arrests and things like that that he had to do that day. But what I came away with, honestly, was how much law enforcement is being used basically as like social work. Like, for example, one time we stopped because the neighbors had called the police because they were worried about this woman who they thought was feeling suicidal because she had lost her daughter. And so they he had to come and basically pick her up and potentially take her for a psychiatric hold. And mm -hmm. so it was like this whole, and you know, that's obviously something that I would imagine a social worker would be involved in, but instead it was the cops being called. I also researched the logistics of a hit and run because I was very naive when I started working on this book. I thought, you know, this guy is gonna die in a hit and run. The car comes out, hits him, he dies, right? It shouldn't be complicated, but of course it's complicated because what kind of a car, what kind of a collision would result in a fatality, uh, what clues might be left, uh, you know, yeah, all kinds of things, all kinds of things have to be sorted out. And um, I got really lucky because I was, a friend of mine connected me with someone who's a scientist and who basically serves as an expert witness on these sort of hit and run trials. So I basically did a lot of homework is what I'm trying to say in order to write the the mystery. I, I want to ask about your uh, column for The Nation. Yes. You started writing it three years ago. That was before the election when we all thought Hillary would win. And so you would be, you know, a Muslim immigrant columnist at America's Oldest Weekly with a Democratic first woman president of America. Uh, and then after November 2016, you had a big new task. You were the immigrant Muslim <laughs> columnist, while Trump was the anti-Muslim, anti-immigrant president. I I doubt that was the job you thought you were going to take on. Well, I mean, I, I certainly, like many other people, thought that Clinton would win. But having said that, I do think that it's not just simply a question of anti-immigrant, but just like immigrant, because I don't necessarily think that um, Hillary Clinton's approach was a progressive approach on immigration. So if you look, for example, at what made Trump stand out from among his his fellow Republican hopefuls, it was the immigration ban on Muslims, but it was also building the wall, right? So, but the wall didn't the wall was there. It w wasn't something that started with Trump. It started with Clinton. I mean, Clinton mm -hmm. started building the first wall. It was in San Diego and Tijuana. It was 13 miles of fencing. And the George W. Bush administration expanded that to another 700 miles. And then those those fences and walls were built during the Bush administration and the Obama administration. So what I guess what I'm trying to say is there is a sense of continuity between both Democratic and Republican administrations on immigration. And while his Trump's rhetoric is just hateful and 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 repugnant, 
we have to recognize that continuity. And when we talk about immigration, it's not a question of like, Trump is bad and Clinton is good, but more of like how this immigration policy that has been going on for more than 25 years, how has it helped the country? Has it helped the country? Has it hurt the country? And what exactly are its effects on people? You and I live on the west side of Los Angeles. You live in Santa Monica. <laughs> This is the most you know, liberal, democratic, anti-Trump place in America, pretty much. There's only one precinct in all of L.A. County where Trump won. It was in Beverly Hills. But I wonder, you are an immigrant from Morocco. You're an American citizen. You're a Muslim. Do you worry about your safety? Well, I feel duty-bound to remind listeners that Santa Monica, however liberal it may be, produced Stephen Miller, who went to the high school some years ago yes. <laughs> that my child now attends. So, you know, I think, again, this idea that it's everything, like that it's either or, like we really do have to question that. And just yesterday, the Washington Post uh, revealed that Stephen Miller had been counseling the president to, you know, basically stage these highly public, highly visible mass arrests of immigrants and their families and their kids in their homes. And the only reason it, they haven't done it, because they've been working on it for a year, the only reason it hasn't happened yet is because Chris, Kristen Nielsen said, well, I don't have enough the logistics of it. I don't have enough beds and I don't know what to do with the paperwork because some of them have U.S. citizens. What do I do? And so it was because of that that she was forced out. And as far as like living in Santa Monica, this goes back to what I'm saying. You know, it's yes, I feel safe on a day-to-day -day basis in my community, but I never let myself feel too safe because I know, based on the example of Stephen Miller, that there is this racist next door, that there is this white nationalist who could be living next door. And I mean, just yesterday when I was on Twitter and I linked to this Washington Post story, all factual, you know, I wasn't even editorializing or saying what I thought. I just said what the headline was basically saying. And some rando on Twitter says, do you have your green card <laughs> to me? I mean, and this is something that happens all the time, like go back to your country and things like that. So I guess what I'm trying to say is I never allow myself to kind of forget about that, of that virulently anti-immigration strain that is part and parcel of American history. Well, now it's time for your Minnesota moment. That's <laughs> news from my hometown of St. Paul that you won't get from Sarah Huckabee Sanders. You just got back from a book festival in Minneapolis. I did. And Minnesota has the highest proportion of immigrants and refugees of any state. I looked up where they're from. Number one source of immigrants to Minnesota is Mexicans. Second, people from India. Third, Somalis like Ilhan Omar. Mm -hmm. Fourth, Hmong from Laos. And lots of them, of course, are refugees. What was your book event in Minneapolis like? Did any of this come up there? Oh, how interesting that you asked me that question, because while I was there, I had to do an interview. And the person who interviewed me is Moroccan. And the first thing she said to me, because it was her first time in Minnesota, she said, I don't understand. Like, this is supposed to be a melting pot. People are supposed to be mixed, but they don't mix. Like, everybody's in their own little, you know, area. But the event was fabulous. It was very well attended. And the conversation was really great. So it was a conversation with Tommy Orange, who did a book called There, There. And it was moderated by Joseph Farag. Last question 
the idea of the immigrant writer, you know, it's such a generic term. On the other hand, the idea of the immigrant is so central to our politics and our culture today. Do you want to be called an immigrant writer? I want to be called a good writer. <laughs> yes. That's what I want to be called. And if you want to add anything else beyond that, as long as you put good in there, <laughs> then that's what matters to me. Leila Lalami, her wonderful new novel is The Other Americans. Leila, thanks so much for Thank talking Thank you very much today. for having me. We spoke with Leila last May. Her book was published in paperback this week. Start Making Sense, a podcast from The Nation magazine, is co-produced by the L.A. Review of Books and recorded in Los Angeles at our Blythe Avenue studios. Our audio engineer is William Broughton. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is The Nation's engagement editor. D.D. Guttenplan is editor of The Nation. Katrina Vanden Heuvel is publisher and editorial director of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. For more principled progressive journalism from The Nation, you can subscribe online to our print and digital magazine at thenation.com backslash podcast subscribe with this special discount for Start Making Sense listeners. You can get digital access to all our articles for less than $1.50 a month. Or you can have our print magazine delivered to you for just 60 cents an issue. That's at thenation.com backslash podcast subscribe, one word. You can find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com. You can subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts, at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or Pocket Casts. I'm John Wiener. Tune in to Start Making Sense next week for more political talk without the boring parts. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward with each new idea, innovation, and partnership. We're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.